So the first step for any leader, if you want people to be proactive, take initiative, act empowered, any of these kinds of things, is you have to stop telling them what to do. And it's so counterintuitive. That's retired Navy Commander David Marquet, author of one of my favorite leadership books of all time, Turn the Ship Around, and his recently released book, Leadership is Language. Hey, welcome to Communicating on Point. I'm Dean Hefta. This show is dedicated to understanding and sharing the insights to help you become a more powerful communicator and a stronger leader. Let's get into my conversation with David Marquet. David Marquet, welcome to the program. Excited to have you on with us. Hey, thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me on your show. You know, there's not a lot of books that I recommend to people when they ask. I've just got a handful. And one of them that consistently comes up is Turn the Ship Around. I mean, it's it's just one of those go-to books. And uh, for me, it, it, it's a, it encapsulates kind of your leadership awakening, I guess, uh, when you were assigned to command the... Um, nuclear submarine could you give us some insight on you know that that story and where all of this came from yeah well uh thanks for uh, thanks for recommending that so my journey it took me up through the ranks of the navy i was a submarine officer i was kind of a uh introverted geeky smart uh <laughs> smart ass i was gonna say kid <laughs> And uh, so I get in the Navy, and it's, and it's high, highly hierarchical, and there's a lot of do what you're told. And I was kind of be the guy in the back of the room. Well, but uh, there's a we could do it a different way. <laughs> and um, sometimes that worked out, and sometimes it didn't. But I got to the point where I was being promoted because I was really good at seeing problems, solving problems, and telling people what to do. And my teams were extensions of my will. And it generally worked out until I got to be a submarine commander. And at the very last minute, I got shifted to a different submarine, even though I'd been preparing for one whole year to go to one kind of submarine, I went to a different kind. So I show up and the equipment's different. All the buttons are different. It's an Alice in Wonderland kind of moment for me, but I'm still locked into this pattern of, of being the smartest guy in the room and telling people what to do. But of course I wasn't. And it blew apart and it gave an order that couldn't be done. The officer ordered it anyway, knowing it couldn't be done. And when it all came to light, and this was very early, this was the first day at sea, very first day. Fortunately, it came, came to light very early. It, but it forced me, even though logically you say, well, that makes no sense. But it forced me at a deep emotional level to deal with it. And I realized that, my whole paradigm of leadership was about getting people to do stuff and that this was wrong. And what I needed to do was let them tell me what they needed to do. But the first step was for me to be quiet. And I, I'd always had it wrong. I said, well, I have to tell people what to do because on their own, they won't, they won't take the initiative. They won't be proactive. They will wait. But that's really backwards. It's, they were being that way because the leader and me in this case would tell them what to do. So they didn't need to do exercise initiative. So the first step for any leader, if you want people to be proactive, take initiative, act empowered, any of these kinds of things, is you have to stop telling them what to do. And it's so counterintuitive. And this is this was my 
awakening as, as, as you say, I realized that the problem wasn't bad orders. The problem was I was giving orders. And so I swore never to give another order as a submarine commander. And that was very, very difficult. But pretty soon this magic happened where I was, instead of everyone leaning down and looking down and managing their people and, and, and us directing and them reporting, we were all looking up and figuring out how to align our activities to our, our job. And it was magic. And it was really a trick to get everyone to think. We had a great can-do organization. We had a great can-do culture. We had a great I can do. I can, I can uh, any task you give me, I can do it with aplomb. But the problem was when it came to thinking, there was a deficit. And uh, no, no, thinking is done by those people at the top. The rest of us just do what we're told. We, had, we, we, we succeeded in activating everybody's thinking. And so this just got me thinking of the power of language because we, we did the whole thing through language changing the words we used so and, and that's a great story because I, I do think that hopefully leaders at some point in their life have that awakening they have that moment where they start realizing the things that they were thinking isn't how things really are and, and some people never get to that and so it's it's just a great single story of how that happened for you and it turned into just a, an amazing message that's really meaningful I think for a lot of people working on their leadership and so tell us about, so the book's huge, it's having impact, but there must have been some gap, uh, something missing that you still felt like there was a kernel that then led you to what is leadership as language. Tell us about how these fit together, what that addresses. So uh, on the submarine, when... When we're activating people's thinking, the currency of thinking is decision making. So what I what I was looking for was what kind of decisions was was the team making. So just give you here's an example. We're next week we're going to change missions. We've been doing uh, one kind of mission. Let's say we're protecting the aircraft carrier and then next week we're going to go up into uh shallow water and we're going to monitor the ships going back and forth through some important strait. It's a different kind of mission. So the, the, the way the submarine needs to be organized, the way we use the sonar system, the, the, the weapons we have loaded in our torpedo tubes, all these things are going to be different. So in the old way, I would say, okay, here's our new mission. We need a different loadout. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. In the new way, we would convey the mission and then they, and then I would be quiet and then they would all come back to me and say, okay, here's my plan. Here's my plan. Here's my plan. Here's what I intend to do. And when, and it was through language. And when we started going out with, uh, to companies talking about this, the, we needed more language examples and they, that, that were relevant in business, not just on a submarine. And so we kind of started, we started coming up with this, don't say this, say that list of things. So for example, uh, I'll give you two real quick. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, I think we should delay product launch. And the response from the leader is, are you sure? Or why do you want to do that? And these things stem from, I don't like to, I'm, I don't like what I'm hearing. I think it's wrong and you need to prove it. So you just created a speed bump to hear that what they actually believe as opposed to curiosity. So we say, be curious, not compelling. But there were all these little sentence starters. Uh, one of our tricks is start the question with how or what. 
And you can't ask a binary question like, how sure are you about that? 51%, 99%, that makes a big difference. Uh, and so, uh, but there needed to be a structure because a long list of don't say this, say say that won't be remember, memorable. So the structure that we came up with was this idea of work and life oscillates between action and contemplation, doing and thinking, and that we need to match the language to whether we're in doing, which tends to be a focused, compliant, get it done kind of language and thinking, which is a more relaxed, contemplative, cast a wide net, embracing of variability and outliers kind of language. And that we actually need to know, to match the language to what we're doing. And so that's the structure of, of the book. And so all these little don't say this, say that, ask a question this way, not that way, fit within the structure. So I gave you this overarching way to fit things in because as you're talking, I'm thinking about the situations where you've got people in the room. Three of them are saying, we need to think this through. We need we need to contemplate and look at some of the variables. And you've got two other people in the room that are saying, we don't need to think about it. We just need to do something. And so yeah. it seems like they're just operating in, in different modes at the same time, which can create a lot of frustration. Yeah, exactly. So, so this, this, decision of the rhythm that we're in is very important. And that structure is, is one of the jobs of the leader. Now, our hypothesis is that because of our industrial age legacy, most organizations are biased towards the, the focused working productive kind of work. So imagine an assembly line this all comes from the assembly line factory. So imagine you're on an assembly line. There's there's a reluctance to stop the line. There's a reluctance for a construction worker to raise his hand and say, I'm not sure that this is right. And there's a reluctance to, to call this pause. We want to keep the work going. There's a sense of obeying the clock. And so we need to make it easier for people to control the clock because we can't go into thinking mode when we're feeling the pressure of the clock. So the first thing we have to do if you want to go into thinking mode is control the clock, call a timeout. This is the purpose of the and on cord in the Toyota production system, and then go into thinking mode. But just like we need to make it easier to go from doing to thinking, we also need to make it easier. Okay, we've done enough thinking. Let's make a commitment to do something. And so because if you just make it easier to go one one direction, then then we're going to overbias the other way, and we're never going to get anything done. So, part of it is making it easier to move out of thinking into some sort of action, and and some of the ways of doing that are to bound it. It's not an initiative; it's an experiment. Hey, let's try it for a month and see what happens. It's easier to make that commitment than for the end of time we're going to do this new thing. That's that's a heavy load. Uh, so so the idea of being more facile to bounce between thinking and doing is the way uh, you want to go. Well, and I appreciate, you know, you in the book, you touch on, on Deming, and um, he's one of my favorite authors, and I think people are still catching up to some of the things that he was talking about, about building quality, and, and you do a great job of really extracting those insights and saying, how do we, you know, in this new economy, really understand that at a different level? And it sounds like this doing and thinking then as you were developing that concept led to this red and blue thinking. Tell us, tell us about red and blue. Yeah. So 
we want to label these two different kinds of work so we can talk about them. And so the focus production, imagine the person on the assembly line, we call that red work. And a lot of what you do, the red work is the actual work. It's the meeting with clients, it's building the product, it's creating the workshop, it's coding the software, it's operating on the patient, it's flying the airplane, it's the work. And then the blue work is improving, thinking about reflecting on the red work. There's, there's not, there is thinking in red work, but red work is focused on the action of the doing and blue work is more about the thinking. So red work is what the production, blue work is improving the production. And that's, that's, that's pretty much it. And so what we, we need, well, here's the thing in the, in the industrial age workplace, in the factory, the people doing the work, the red work never had to do blue work. Someone else did the blue work. We separated the doers from the deciders. So some overseers, and this is why we have all these cultural labels. That's why we call white collar, blue collar. This is why we wear different uniforms, different hard hats, uh, suits, overalls, whatever. So I can see, oh, you're in the doing tribe. Oh, you're in the deciding tribe. But the key now is we need to get the doers to be the deciders. The most effective organizations are to let the people doing the work make decisions about the work. And so Deming helped us in that direction. We, you, we like to poke fun at Taylor way back a, a century ago, where he said, no, 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 we don't need the doers. We don't need the workers to think. We actually don't want them to think. We will observe them. We'll decide for them what, for them what to do. De Deming then comes along and says, no, they actually have ideas and thoughts, and they probably have better ideas for improving the process than we do. So let's ask them. But we still are going to reserve the, to leadership's purview the decisions to change the process. What I'm saying is at this point, we need to go one step further and let those people who are doing the process actually own the improvements to the process. And if you do this, it invokes a whole host of, of issues and language problems because if I've only been if I'm only naturally speaking a language, which is about focus and getting stuff done, then it's hard to flip to pause, reflect, embrace variability. That is a big, a big shift because we're so used to being able to measure, you know, and, and it's tied into the questions we ask. So um, what did you get done today? Right. And, no, and when you're in that, today. when right. you're in that blue work, right, where you're yeah. just contemplating and you're thinking, uh, that's a tough <laughs> question to answer. So uh, co companies do quarterly goals or annual goals, and they should always be matched with annual learning or quarterly learning. So what are we going to get done and what are we going to learn? If you go back to uh, Amazon's first annual report, Bezos writes in 1999, we have much to learn about uh, selling stuff on the internet. Meantime, GE under Jack Welch, there's no, if you just look at the annual report, there are no learning words in the annual report. It's all about this is what we've done, this is what we've done, this is what we're gonna do. And so you can see the difference in the approach, which is, yeah, we're doing this, but we're also gonna overlay learning and moments of learning, and we're gonna build learning into what we do. And, and, and you can just see it from the language that the CEOs use. Yeah, and, and I love that there's labels because, in my experience, once you name something, then it be then it exists. Right. So having you know red thinking and blue thinking now all of a sudden these exist. Before 
things can kind of be muddled in, you know, maybe on a scale of one to 10, we're, we're kind of running along at a seven and we've, we've kind of intermingled thinking and doing, and, and we spend 20 minutes over here thinking about something in an hour over here doing something, but it's all kind of muddled together. But if we, if we have an identity to them and say, we're going to be at a 10 on our thinking. And, and when we, when we get to the point where we're ready, we're now going to shift to be a 10 in our doing. Is that, is that a fair way to think about that? Exactly. That's brilliant. And so here's the thing that was uh, strange for people when they visited the Santa Fe, the submarine, we were better at thinking and embracing different perspectives. We would say things like, well, how, tell me how you see it different and that kind of thing. So the decision-making was more resilient, but once the decision was made, okay, we're going to reposition to this location. Then we were better at performing the task, opening the book and following the procedure with more compliance and better accuracy than other submarines because they were they didn't have a way to talk about it. So they had this muddled, yeah, we're sort of, yeah, I sort of need you to do what the procedure says, but I also need you to be a thinker. And uh, some people now are saying, well, red and blue, I want both. I want to be purple. I don't think so because here's why. Red tasks benefit from reducing variability. Blue thinking benefits from embracing variability. You can't have both. Either variability is on your side or it's not. So for example, in manufacturing, variability is the enemy. You want every whole drill hole to be the same size, the same spacing, so all the blocks fit together, whatever it happens to be. Uh, when it comes to internet security, Variability is the enemy. I don't want some people to be loosey-goosey about their passwords. But when it comes to thinking and decision-making, variability is the ally. So it's not a sort of halfway here, there. It's way over this way. Like you say, 10 on one side and then 10 on the other side. And that's why you need two different languages. And so that leads, um, I was just thinking about IBM when they're working on the personal computer. Um, it seemed like a recognition of that fact where they said, we have to peel this whole mission off and move it over into a skunk works where it's not going to be, um, you know, disrupted by all of this execution thinking. We know there's going to be a lot of creativity that has to happen to create this. Is that a, an example where the organization just said, we got to, we got to pull this whole thing out because we know we're going to mess it up. Yeah. I, that sounds right. It's what 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 they were saying there in my mind is, hey, our organization is tuned and biased towards doing. It's an industrial age organization. And if we want a lot of experimentation and thinking, it's not going to happen in using the uh, mechanisms and the rituals and the traditions and people sitting in the conference room table in exact hierarchical order. It's just not going to work. So we have to carve off a little secret group that doesn't conform to those rules in order to get this done. So it sounds like you can you can scale up and scale down this concept where, you know, maybe you have an hour of time and we have to take 20 minutes to do some thinking and then we're going to take the rest of the time to to make something or create something or it could be, you know, organizationally wide. Uh, this is this is a concept that scales, is that right? Exactly. So it, it can, it, even at the very short, like I'm going to push a button or operate a switch. I want a tiny moment of thinking, okay, I need to convince myself, is this the right 
button. Yep, my hand is on the right switch. I'm not one switch over to the left or the right. Okay, good. Now I'm going to pull the switch and make the pump start. Uh, all the way, I think it plays out all the way to your life. So for example, you, I had a career in the, in the military for 28 years. Then there was a pause. And I, I, now in retrospect, I didn't think about it at the time, but in retrospect, I had, it was red work. I was doing the military thing. And then there was a pause and there was reflection. And now I'm doing a different thing. I'm an author and um, consultant and management guru, so to speak. And, and I, now I'm wondering, okay, well, how long do I do this? Is it 10 years? Is it 15 years? Of course, you start to feel your mortality. And would it be good to pause again? And we have, uh, we have a model for this. Academics go on sabbatical. Uh, other professionals go on sabbatical. Bill Gates did his uh, Think Weeks where he'd go and take a bunch of books. So it would be one week or two weeks a year. And so we have models of this. But I think this idea, it's this rhythm, acting, thinking. All, it, that's the learning. That's the formula for learning. You think about something, then you do it, you test it, and then you then you reflect back on how, how did it go. So this is actually the, the decoded learning, lifetime learning takes you through this process. So, so in it, you've, you've got this, this playbook approach, you know, these, these fundamentals, these, these rules of thumb that we can apply, but let's say I'm a leader, you know, and, and I've been charged with leading a change initiative. And I know that language is really at the root of what's going to get that done. What are some of the insights that I need to keep in mind as we think about leading change, leading an organization through, through uncertainty? What do I need to know? We act our way to new thinking. Almost all change things I see are backwards. We try and convince people that there's a burning platform or we need to change somehow. And then we go off and hope that they do something. And I don't think this is the way it works. Uh, I, my personal experience is it doesn't work like that. And uh, there's now some science that, that shows that we can, we act, we essentially, while our, our mindsets affect our language, the language also affects our mindset. And if we say a certain word, so for example, on the submarine, we used to have a lot of days. We had days by rank. We had days by department. We had days based on your level of qualification. And so there were a lot of days. And we just said, you can't, we're not going to recognize a sentence that you speak in which you refer to somebody else on the submarine as the, using the word they. No they on Santa Fe. So you have to use the word we. So we started saying, well, we, we, we. And now guys in engineering are referring to the supply department as we, the senior guys are referring to the cooks as we, the enlisted guys are referring to the officers as we, it's not they anymore. And initially nothing happens, but six months later, our brains had said, well, we, I keep using we for this person. They must be on my tribe. If you want to know where the organizational boundaries are, the org chart doesn't tell you it's where people say we, and then they change to they. You start walking down the hallway. Who are these people? We're marketing, we're marketing, we're marketing. There's some, their product development, whatever. So that's where the team boundary ends. We cooperate with we, we compete with they. Mm. That's a huge identity thing, right? Because <laughs> it, 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 ties, it ties into our responsibility when things 
uh, don't go well, right? It, it's easy to say they screwed it up. Exactly. It, it's the span of how you think about responsibility. We, we ordered the wrong part. Everyone knows you're in engineering and there's a guy in supply who's responsible, but you still had part, you know, you still could have checked on it. And it's part, it's, it's how big of a team, how big of a net do you cast? Do you think, does your mind say my team is this big? Some, some organizations, the team is ends at my skin. There's mm-hmm. no team beyond me. Mm-hmm. Because when, we have systems that, sorry, I'm just getting a rant on that. We have systems no, that hit each other against each other. Yeah, the Navy, by design. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I had to rank my three department heads against each other. I had to say someone was one of three, two of three, and three of three. And then I say, oh, and I need you. It's really important for the success of the submarine if the weapons officer, the engineer, and the navigator cooperate. I mean, you want them to cooperate, but I'm going to have to rank them against each other. So it creates an artificiality that you got to get around. Yeah. And, and, and that's a, a, a great point in the book, too, of the, the things that are running in the background of what I'll call people's software of competition, of, you know, competition for resources, of limited spaces for promotion, those types of things that are happening behind the scenes that have an impact. And so that's that's a huge uh, consideration for anybody in a leadership position of, what are the things that we are doing that are really affecting the background of the decision making? Right. Now, uh, I guess a question, I think people mimic the models, the people they admire. And so maybe I've worked in a large organization that's kind of old school thinking. And a lot of the people that I've seen, I end up mimicking and, and they're, they're modeling some of these behaviors that might not be as effective as we want. And I've had that experience where you see somebody now all of a sudden that's totally different. It's like, wow, this is this is remarkable what they can get done with different thinking. Yeah. How do you coach somebody that maybe they're they're in the middle of a large old old world organization, command and control? How do they survive inside of that using new world thinking as a leader? Well, you got you can only control yourself, so you focus on what you can do. You run your meetings different. You treat your people different. You ask questions differently. If, if, you, if it's so onerous that you, your health is suffering, then you don't want to do that. You got to get out of there. But if it's, if it's well-intentioned and people, what, what we see is well-intentioned people trapped in the wrong playbook. So for example, almost every meeting I see is run in the wrong way. By wrong, I mean it doesn't, it's not running in a way that achieves the objective. So if we want to make a decision, we typically go, oh, hey, we're going to, should we launch the product on time? What does everyone think? There's a discussion. All you're doing is anchoring the group, people who feel differently, the outliers, they get quieter and quieter. They don't con- uh, contribute. We are deprived of their thinking and what they see. And then we make a decision based on the loudest people or the first people to speak. This is not the best way. What you want to do is vote first then discuss because the voting secret blind probabilistic voting one to 99 will reveal will allow the people who feel strongly one way or the other to identify themselves and then we give them voice whether they were the quietest or the loudest people in the room that's what you want to do but i rarely see meetings run this way why because we're just mimicking the way i've always seen meetings run because in the in the industrial age i didn't 
I didn't want that. That was an impediment to getting the assembly line running again. And since I was already smarter than you, I didn't need to hear what you had to think. So all meetings are run wrong. So taking that thinking, if I if I'm the leader of of that meeting or of a group and I want to employ some different ways of engaging people, maybe I get them thinking before they show up. Right. You know, read this. Here's the thing to be thinking about. Yeah. And right when we start, it's got to be a very unbiased. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, we're going to make a decision about launching the product and then just let it go and let them come with their own uh, domain knowledge or say, here's one page for and one page against. Just sort of set it up like a like a court and have it be very agnostic, it, not not. Well, we're going to do this unless someone convinces us not to. Now <laughs> right. you just create. Yeah. OK, so I anyway, keep going. Now you've so, got momentum that you have to. Right, fight. right, right, right. So they show up. We've got lots of technology now that we can get them to vote anonymously. We can do sure. heads up, seven up. We can do yes. things to now let people know where are we at. And so then we find out where everybody's at. Then what? Well, then you then you embrace the outlier. You say, so the job of the leader in a meeting in in this situation is not to make the decision or drive consensus. At the end, you may need to make a decision, but the the job of the leader is to uncover what everybody knows. That's what you need to do first. So you you say, okay, we got to make a decision. Is the water in Flint, Michigan safe? And 10 people say, yes, 99. How safe is the water? 99%. 10 people say one person says 1% safe. It's toxic, has lead. So you say, okay, well, you're the outlier. Let's hear from you. What's what's behind your thinking? What are you seeing that's resulting in that? All, all innovation and creativity always will start, will sound weird. It'll sound wrong. Oh, we can, uh, we can fly. That's weird. Oh, the earth is round. That sounds wrong. All innovation and creativity initially sounds wrong. Now, sometimes it is wrong. But sometimes it's right. So we embrace the outlier. We give voice to the outlier. If and and then you make a decision or you get a commitment from the group. Okay, what does everyone think? What are we gonna do? Because what are we gonna do is separate from what do we think? You can think nine, ten people out of ten can think the water is safe, but we still can do more sampling and install a filtration system. So there's the thinking and the behavior. If you listen to people. They won't sabot the, the the likelihood of sabotaging the actions afterwards will be reduced. That's excellent. You know, there's so much in this book. I um, I call it an amen book. As I'm reading through <laughs> leadership language, I'm like, that's exactly right. Amen. Like more people need to know this, and and that's my encouragement to people is, uh, you know, whether it's turn the ship around or leadership is language. These are these aren't these aren't like abstract. These are the the way the world should be. These are things that we can put to work right now. These are things that we need to be aware of uh, as leaders, things that whether it's with your family, with a community organization, with a company, we have a responsibility. And language is a huge part of that responsibility that we have. And so I, I'm so thankful that you uh, put the blood, sweat and tears into a follow up um, and, and a great book like Leadership is Language. Any parting um guidance or thoughts that you want to make sure people understand when they think about their language and they think about leadership? Yeah, I, I kept feeling myself like I would react 
in a way that was not as helpful. So my, it's much easier to say, so um, blah, 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 you know, blah, 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 right? And these are binary self-affirming questions. They're not really questions, they're not helpful, but they were so easy and I just felt like I was programmed and I, and I think this is the right word. We're programmed to use industrial age language. You want to ask the question. So let's say you're, you're teaching some point. You say, okay, you get to the end. You say, what's unclear? You want to make it easy for someone to say, yeah, that didn't make any sense. Or I didn't understand this. What's unclear? What seems wrong? What did I miss? How could this go wrong? And make that the easy path. But every one of these will sound weird everyone and every one of these it's always easier let's be a can-do organization of course why not what else would we want to be how about a can-think organization no that sounds weird all of these will sound weird to you initially but 100 years from now they won't excellent david uh what's the best way for people to to get more information about the work that that you've done and and about you so we, uh, our program is called intent-based leadership because of the power of intent and using that word in your language. So intentbasedleadership.com is our website. Uh, I'm on social media. I'm L. David Marquet, L for Lewis, on various social me- medias and LinkedIn. Say hi, send me your story, connect. I'd uh, love to hear how it goes. Awesome. Well, thank you again, David Marquet, for joining uh, us today with this message. And uh and uh, releasing this, this excellent book for leaders. Cheers. Thanks, Dean. Thanks. 